If you will turn with me um, to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, we're going to start there, we're going to read from John 7 and then I'm going to skip forward to John 8, we're going to start in verse 37 and then I'll jump forward to chapter 8 verse 12 after verse 39, so just follow with me if you could. On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because the Jews, excuse me, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Go forward to chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word and consider what you say in this gospel that you've superintended through John, By your spirit, Father, we pray that we would see who your son is. We would understand what your word is saying and what you're reflecting to us about who he is and what he's come to do. And we pray that we would trust in him. Your name would be exalted. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know you're aware of this. This isn't... um, much of a science lesson I'm going to give you, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Light is necessary for us to see. Did you hear that? <laughs> Light is necessary for us to see. It's necessary for us to recognize color and beauty, and it even affects our mood. Let me give you an example. If you asked, were asked, the co- what's the color of an orange? You would say, it's orange. But what's the color of an orange when there is no light? It is an orange, is it? It's orange because in that color, because of the way in which it reflects the light. And that's what happens with all color we see, is that that light actually helps us to see color and beauty and to see it all. And light actually tends to affect our mood, doesn't it? That's why depression rates up in the northwest part of the United States are much higher than they are here, because light even affects our mood. During daylight is the time we are awake. During the day is when we tend to enjoy our time. We feel alive. We see beauty. At night, we sleep. We tend to feel more separated and anxious at night. It's oftentimes when people lay down in bed at night and close their eyes to go to sleep that they, that they lay there and begin to worry, feel distant or anxious or have fears. We tend to experience more fear of harm being done to us at night. You know, we often don't turn on our alarms during the day, but we do turn them on at night. And at night, we tend to commit more sinful and criminal acts. The majority of crime is committed when it's dark. A lot of our sin happens when it's dark. 
Both of these are true precisely because the absence of light hides our deeds and keeps us from seeing what others might be doing to harm us. That's why darkness is often associated with depression and despair and coldness and ugliness and death and evil. See, we can go to bed feeling lonely and separate and afraid and anxious, and we can wake up to the light shining through our window feeling alive and hopeful and connected. Light and darkness in our language and in the language of the Bible, as a result of this, take on both moral and cognitive connotations. We, we hope people will see the light, right? By which we, we mean that we hope they will come to recognize that something is true. We'll refer to someone's evil deeds or maybe a disturbing movie or a novel as being dark. That was a dark movie. That was a dark novel. So we recognize that someone in the dark is someone who is ignorant of the truth, and someone who is in the dark is someone who is evil in some way. This is why it's so intriguing to consider the way that God is often described in the Bible. Listen to some of the ways he's described. Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is Light. And in him is no darkness at all. You, or if we think about even the word of God, and we come to something like Psalm 119, as those who are in darkness and we can't find our way because we're walking in darkness, then we're told by the psalmist, your word, speaking the Lord's word, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Ultimately, God is the light. He is truth and goodness, and beauty, he is life. And his word is like a light as it shows us the truth and leads us to life. See, in the Bible story, light is, is God uses the physical light that we see like a prop that shines on the stage of human history as God reveals himself and his work to his people who are in darkness. Light pictures the holiness and truthfulness, and transcendence of God. By that transcendence, I mean he is great and unapproachable. While at the same time, light pictures the nearness of God, his eminence as he comes to us and gives us life and draws near to us. Think about even the beginning of creation. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit hovered over the surface of the deep, or the darkness. And what happens? In the midst of that, what seems chaotic and dark, 
God begins to order the creation. And when he orders the creation, what's the first thing he does? Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And you go down to day four, the fourth day, as God has ordered the creation, if you will, in the first three days, in the fourth day, he begins to fill the creation that he's now ordered. And as he fills it, what's the first thing he creates? Sun and moon and stars as far as filling the creation. And he creates them to do what? To rule the day and the night. To give light. See, we were created to live in this creation a creation that is governed by the light. We are created to reflect this God who describes himself as the light. We were not created to live in darkness and lies and sin and death. We weren't created for that stuff. We were created for truth and light and holiness and life. This matters as we understand the Bible story because the Bible story is a story of us being a people who dove headlong into darkness through our sin. We were created to reflect God's holiness, to, in a sense, be light bearers, to reflect back to him the truth about him, but we dove into darkness and sin. And so the Bible describes us as a result of that as people who are spiritually dead, we're not alive. We are people who are spiritually blind. And where is a blind person? In the dark. We are people who are walking in darkness. We are people who are children of the night. These are all the ways the Bible describes us. And we weren't created for this. We were created to be children of the day. To be spiritually alive. To be walking in the light. We were created to reflect the truth about God. But because of our sin, we reflect a lie about him. And because of our plunge into darkness and sin, we hate the light, for the light exposes the truth about us. Exposes the truth about us. That's why we wrestle with the word. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes we come to those passages in the word, and as a pastor, people almost feel like apologizing for them, as pastors often do. You almost feel like it when you're about to talk about it in front of your friends. And when you finally see someone who's bold, you're like, that person's bold. It's because that person is willing to just say, I'm not afraid of the light. I know it's going to expose my wickedness and sin. So let's just look at it and see what it says. But we're so afraid of it that we want to hide from the truth. Because if we walk into the truth, into the light, all of a sudden, all of our wickedness is exposed. Our sin is showing. See, for the light exposes the truth about us. And here's the thing. God loves us and doesn't want to leave us in the darkness. This story doesn't end with us just plunging into sin and God saying, fine, you want to be in darkness? I'll turn out the light. It's over. Now, is that the punishment for sin? Absolutely. And how is Jesus often described the wrath of God? He often describes it as being in this place of darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. This outer place where there is no light. But he doesn't leave us there in the darkness. He chooses to send his son to save us. The eternal son of God came down from heaven as a man, Jesus, to rescue us from the darkness and bring us back to the light. 
to bring us back to himself. Look at John chapter 1 so we can start this off properly as far as the context of this gospel. And notice the connection between creation, the Son of God, and light even that's here. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now he goes on to talk about John, who came to bear testimony about the light, he himself not being the light, but coming to bear testimony about the light. And then verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. See, Jesus has come to bring the light of God, to be the perfect image bearer, to reflect who he is, as we fail to. And and look at chapter 3 of John, as this happens in verse 19, and this is the judgment The light, that being Jesus, has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Isn't that what happens? When the lights turn on, everything you're doing is exposed. And when Jesus comes reflecting perfectly the image of God as the holy son of God and walks among us, he immediately, just coming into his presence, confronts our wickedness, our sin. Even though he's come to save us, we don't want to look at him. With all that in mind, look back at John chapter 7, verse 37, because I want to build this theme a little bit more. On the last day of the feast, the great day. Now what feast is that? If you want to understand what feast that is, look at John chapter 7 verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. This is a feast where they would gather in Jerusalem, and so Jesus comes to Jerusalem for this feast. And the feast is at hand. And it's the last day, we're told in verse 37, it's the last day of this feast. So what is the Feast of Booths? I don't know if you guys are familiar with this feast. It's not one that we celebrate in the Christian calendar, um, so you may not be very familiar with it. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacle. The Feast of Tabernacles, it follows the Day of Atonement. So the Day of Atonement happens where they gather and their sin is atoned for. And it's this harvest festival, if you will. Happens in the fall, and it's a harvest festival that recalls God's provision for his people during their wilderness wanderings. See, God had redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. And when he brought them out of Egypt and took them through the wilderness, several things happened. He provided food from heaven for them. We looked a bit at that, Jesus referencing that last week. 
He provided water for their thirst from the rock, miraculously in the wilderness, and he provided light to lead them out of Egypt and through the wilderness, if you remember, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And what they did is they would always celebrate this, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, this provision of the Lord in redeeming them. And they would specifically reference what we're talking about here, the water and the light. Now what's interesting is look back at Exodus 13 because I want you to see the reference specifically to the light. Exodus chapter 13. We'll just look at that quickly. Keep your hand there in John. I'll take you through a few passages so you see the building of this feast and the importance of it, where the themes for it come from. Exodus chapter 13. And if you look at verse 17 and following, it says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. See, this light is a picture of the Lord leading Israel, being present with Israel, and redeeming them. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, they celebrated and commemorated the Lord's redeeming them from Egypt and making provision, making provisions for them of water from the rock and making provision of them with light to lead them through the wilderness. They would commemorate all this through a ceremony where what they would do is they would, they would draw water and as they were, after, after they were drawing the water and then pouring the water, they would light these huge lamps around the court of the women in the temple, which would light up the whole city of Jerusalem. Let me read how D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, describes it. He starts by quoting the Jewish Mishnah, and he describes this scene. Here's the quotation of the Jewish Mishnah. He who has not seen the joy of the place of water drawing has never in his life seen joy. Carson goes on to comment on that. This extravagant claim stands just before the description of the lighting of the four huge lamps in the temple's court of women and of the exuberant celebration that took place under their light. Men of piety and good works danced through the night, holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on every night of the Feast of Tabernacles with the light from the temple area shedding its glow all over Jerusalem. So there's a description of what's happening on the last day of that feast. On the last day of that feast is when Jesus begins to speak to them. But this feast was about more than just remembering God's provision in the wilderness, and I want you to understand a little bit more context to it. Because you say, oh great, so they got together, they're remembering God's provision in the wilderness, but it's more than just about remembering, it's also about looking forward. 
In other words, as they were remembering God's provision in the wilderness and his redeeming them from Egypt, they were also looking forward to that great messianic hope, that day the Messiah would come and save them, that eschatological hope they had, the hope of the end, that this Messiah would come, that all this that we're celebrating is picturing what's coming in the Messiah. And they understood that as they celebrated, as they lit the torches around the court of the women, as they were drawing the water, as they were holding torches and the orchestras were going and they were singing and dancing through the night during the celebration, which happened for um, seven days and then the eighth day was the final day, as that was happening, they understood that they were looking back on the provision of water and light by God, and at the same time they were looking forward to their great hope with the coming Messiah, the one who would save them from darkness, the one who would provide them with eternal water to drink, to quench their thirst forever, the one who would come as the new covenant. Look at Isaiah chapter 42 so you can see the development of this for them. And here we're doing some biblical theology together, and I just want to walk through some of these passages to see how this is developing for them. Isaiah 42, because I want you to understand this whole context of this feast when Jesus arrives. Isaiah 42, here we have a messianic promise in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Who's that talking about? Jesus. Now go down to verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you. This is now him speaking to the Messiah, the anointed one with the Spirit. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out, out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. See what the Messiah is going to do? He's going to bring this great light. He's going to be that great light. And they're looking forward to this, and it goes on further. God's provision of life became, light became a picture of them, for them, of God's eternally dwelling with us and bringing an end to all darkness. Look at how Isaiah continues to build on this. Go to Isaiah chapter 60, because Isaiah does continue to build on this theme. And look at Verse 19, as he talks about the, the end of all things, the new heavens and new earth, he jumps in in verse 19 and he says this, the sun shall be no more, it shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. And then if you notice what comes right after that is Isaiah 61, which is what Jesus quotes from in Luke chapter 4 when he begins his ministry. And he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, thus the very popular feast, or the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of the Booths, which was quite popular, became associated not only with what God did in providing them water and light 
coming out of Egypt and redeeming them, but it became associated with God sending his Messiah and bringing their great end-time hope that God would be their light, that he would provide them with streams of living water and quench their thirst forever, that he would end all sin and suffering and death and mourning, that he would bring an end to all darkness. It became associated with bringing in everlasting righteousness and the destroying of the enemy. And that's how the people of Israel understood it and how they celebrated it. In fact, look at Zechariah chapter 14 to see that even more clearly. Now, I'm not going to go through this whole um, chapter with you, but I'm going to look at a couple things. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar. It's just before Malachi. This is one of the most difficult chapters in arguably one of the most difficult books in the Bible. I'm not going to unwind it all for you. I just want you to see the association of light and water and the end times and the Feast of Tabernacles. I want you to see that association, and that's all, we're going to leave it there. Look at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. So he's starting to talk about this day that's coming for the Lord. Now look at verse 4. On that day, his feet, that's being the Lord's, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move north and the other half southward, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now listen to this. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. And what's going to happen on that great day? On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. That becomes the permanent condition of things. Now notice what it says there. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So this great day the Lord is coming in which he will be the light, He will judge their enemies, and springs of living water will flow out from the city. Now here here comes the question, how does that have any connection to the Feast of Booths? Look at verse 9 first, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. Now look down to verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. He goes on talking about the Feast of Booths for three verses. I don't want to unwind all of that for you. But what I do want you to understand is there's an association throughout the Old Testament for the Jewish people that when they came to the Feast of Booths, this feast where Jesus is speaking, when they came to the Feast of Tabernacles, they were remembering what God had done for them in redeeming them from, Israel, uh, from Egypt, that he had brought them out And that he had provided water from the rock to quench their thirst. And he provided light to light their way. And that was a picture of his presence with them. And his care for them. And his provision for them. And his redeeming of them. And that that continued to develop in their mind. That as we celebrate the Feast of Booze, we not, not only look back on what God did, but we are looking forward to what he will do in the end times Messiah who will save us from all evil and bring an end to all darkness and quench our thirst forever and be our light. And their 
worshiping in this context during the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's the last night of this feast. And the last night of that feast, they are drawing the water and they have lit the lamps. And they are dancing. And Jesus walks in in John 7.37. And at that point, in this day they longed for, as they celebrate at that point, Jesus cries out on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You think they understand what he's talking about here? Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So on this scene, Jesus talks about this. Now I want to go forward to verse 12 of chapter 8, because I want to pick up the significance here. Again, Jesus spoke to them. Here's the problem with as you read your, as your New Testament. It's actually the again is the second time he speaks to them in the same context as verse 37. At the feast, he stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then as soon as he's done crying that out, explain to them that he will give them rivers of living water, he then turns and says, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I ask you as I went through the Old Testament, do you hear the significance of what he's saying about himself in the context in which he's saying it? I am your great eschatological end times hope. I am the one to whom, to, to which everything in the Old Testament was pointing. Those celebrations you had, they were all pointing to me. Those promises you had, they were all pointing to me. You've been waiting to be saved from the darkness of sin and suffering and death. And I am the light who comes into the world to chase that darkness out. You follow me, you'll walk in the light and never again in darkness. You've been dying of thirst spiritually. I am the one who gives you the kind of water that will quench your thirst forever. The holy and transcendent God the one in whom is eternal life, he has drawn near to us in Jesus to save us and to give us life. He's come to bring us out of darkness and into the light of life. He's come to overcome the fall into sin and suffering and death and darkness. He is the light of the world. And he went to the cross and he took the darkness of sin and death upon himself so that we could be brought out of darkness and into his light. You see, we can be saved through faith in him by looking to him, by following him. We can be saved. We can be brought out of darkness and into his light by looking to him who took darkness, the light of the world, took darkness upon himself at the cross. Our sin, the death we deserved, 
so that we could be brought out of the darkness and into the light. That's what Jesus is claiming about himself. The question is, do you believe in him? Do you know him? Are you trusting in Jesus or are you remaining in the darkness? See, there's the only two places to be. You're either in Christ and you know him as the light of the world or you're in the darkness. Those are the only two places to be. Believers, those of you who know him, who've been saved by him, the Apostle Paul tells us that the good news in Christ is that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. See, that's where we lived in the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus comes in as the king of light to rescue us from that kingdom and to make us children of light. Do you trust in him? And what does he want us to do now that we're in the kingdom of his beloved son? Because a lot of us are. So what does he want us to do? Now that we're in the light, let me give you six, and I know that sounds like a lot, but they're going to be quick, six quick applications, okay? Six of them. First one is this. Be thankful that God has brought you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Be thankful. Where where do I get that from? Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I just quoted part of this verse, but I'll look at the whole thing with you. Colossians chapter 1. There is this living in thanksgiving. Jesus says this. I mean, excuse me, Paul says this as he's writing. He says in verse 11, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now notice this, giving thanks, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the first thing we do is we give thanks to the Lord for saving us, for qualifying us to be saints in the kingdom of light, for saving us in his son Jesus. We give thanks. And here's the thing. You may not always feel this salvation from darkness subjectively. I want you to get a hold of that. You might go through much of your life feeling like you're in darkness, especially if you suffer from depression. Especially then. And you have to be brought back to the reminder that while you might be in a time of suffering or depression and feeling in darkness, you need to be reminded that you have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son out of the kingdom of darkness. So while you may not feel it, it's as true as Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's your hope, and so you give thanks. Second, not only are we thankful, but we walk as children of the light. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And verse 8, let me see, I'm in the wrong place, sorry. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8, 
Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8. He says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. What does that look like? It's to be thankful for sure, but what else? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and trying... (laughs) And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, darkness, but instead expose them. In other words, don't live like those who are in darkness. Walk as children of the light. You used to walk as children of the darkness. You used to live in ungodliness and sin. Now, as one who is thankful that you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, and you are now made children of the light, live like it. Walk as someone who is, in fact, a child of the light. Walk in holiness and get rid of the deeds of sin or of darkness. So we're supposed to be thankful that God has brought us out of the darkness. We're supposed to walk as children of the light. We're supposed to keep awake. Here's the next one. Keep awake and soberly live in readiness for Christ's return. You know, he's coming back. Are you living in hope of that? Are you ready for it? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says this, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, verse 1, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, you're not going to know much about that. It's going to come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, people are going to be walking around in the darkness blind to what the reality is, and then Jesus is going to come upon them. But you, verse 4, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that you're going to know what the day is. What he means is, you're waiting for Jesus to return. There's no surprise when he comes back. Thank God. It's not like, oh no, this man has come to rob my house like a person who is asleep at night and a thief comes in. For you, it's like, you're burning the midnight oil. You're waiting for him to return. You're thanking God that he's here. It's not supposed to surprise you. We're children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the darkness or of the of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. In other words, to be sober is, is to live for the Lord in anticipation of his return. Constantly reading ourselves. Like today is the day the Lord has made. I will be glad and rejoice in it. I will give thanks. I will walk as a child of the day and not of the night. And I will live in hope and expectation that he comes tonight. That he comes today. And I'm going to live my whole day in light of that. Every day of my life in light of, hopefully Jesus returns today. It wouldn't surprise me if he did. Fourth, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. As children of light, we proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. You're going to see this light theme comes up a lot. I can't even deal with but a small portion of it. But 1 Peter chapter 2, 
We're to be thankful. We're to walk as children of the light. We're to keep awake, ready for Christ's return. And we're to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are we those things in Christ? That, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're God's people set apart to do what? Proclaim his excellencies to who? The world. We're to proclaim his excellencies, the excellencies of Jesus to other people. That's what children of the day do. We've been brought out of the darkness. But let me ask you this. If, 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 you, if you're a person who suffers with deep depression and someone gives you a vitamin and you take the vitamin and you're not depressed any longer, you feel great, you're going to go around like the biggest vitamin pusher on the planet, aren't you? Take this! Well, Jesus has brought you out of darkness of sin and suffering and death in the ultimate sense. I know we still suffer. I know we still sin. I know we still physically die. But in the ultimate sense, we await that day where we live with him with no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. We are no longer children of the night, but children of the day, children of the light. He's brought us out of despair and darkness into the light and life. And we're supposed to proclaim him, make him known. Fifth, this is going to sound strange, but here you go. Hold your pastors accountable. You ready? Fifth application, hold your pastors accountable to proclaiming Jesus and not tampering with God's word. Why do I say that? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, because this ties in with this theme of the light as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So here's, here's where I've been giving you all these applications that I'm supposed to keep as well, but here's one that you're just supposed to apply to me and Jason and elders, etc. right? Okay, just, just apply these right to us, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, in other words, Paul's talking here about the ministry that he has in, in, in a sense as a proclaimer of God's word, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. What does he mean by that? We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, we're not going to play around with God's word. We're not going to try to manipulate you and practice cunning. We just want to make an open statement of the truth. And people have commended me and said, I really appreciate that you just say it right out there, even if we don't like it. And I say, listen, you don't have to commend me for being obedient. It's what the Bible commands me to do, to make an open statement of the truth. Thank God that I'm obedient because it's his spirit working in me that keeps me obedient anytime I am. And it's my sin every time I'm not. But he's... We're making an open statement of the truth. Now look at what he says, verse 3. And if our gospel is veiled, as if people can't see it, 
It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the good news or the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, now here's a reference back to Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So now here Paul has connected creation with new creation. And Jesus is at the center of both of those. And we're supposed to proclaim him. And we're supposed to make an open statement of his word. And pastors messing around with anything else is pastor or pastors being disobedient. Proclaiming themselves and not Jesus. And they often do this with what they think are good motives, which are are, are these kinds of motives. You see, the reason people don't believe is because I haven't been cunning or clever enough. I haven't found the quite the right trick to convince them or the right idea to get across to them. I haven't put in place the right program. I haven't said it quite the right sequence of words. Whatever it is, I have failed to do something to convince them, and so I will tamper with God's word because if I just say all this stuff here, people will walk away. So you can't tell them all the stuff in here. People don't want to hear that kind of stuff. Right? Have you guys ever heard that before? But what does Paul say? The reason people don't believe isn't because you're not cunning or crafty enough. And it isn't because of anything. There's nothing that you can do about the fact that they don't believe. They don't believe because their minds have been blinded. They can't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And the only way they're ever going to see it is when God shines it into their hearts as the word is openly proclaimed. So hold your pastors accountable to proclaiming Jesus and to not tampering with God's word. That's what children of the day do. You come to your pastors and say, stop tampering with that. Sixth, find your hope in the consummation of God's kingdom. I'm going to end with this passage. I, I, I've sort of referenced this already, but but I, I, I want to reference it again. The fact is, is that we live in a fallen world. And in spite of the fact that God has saved us and rescued us in Christ, we still suffer, don't we? Still suffer. Still struggle with sin. It seems all around us as we look around like the enemy's on the march and like he's winning, doesn't it? It can often look that way. I mean, sure, we'll have days where it looks like things are going our way. But when it comes down to it, as we look around and survey history, survey survey our own lives, it doesn't look good for us. Some of you are struggling with very difficult suffering right now. And even though you're children of light, you feel like you've been plunged into the darkness. You have a hard hard time seeing your way out of it. So what do you do when you're there? What do you do? You find your hope in the consummation of God's kingdom. You look forward. 
Revelation chapter 22. Because there will be a day when the Lord returns and consummates all things. And I want you to hear a brief description of it. And I want you to hear the description of the water and the light here. And even allusions to the garden. Then the angel showed me the river. Revelation 22 verse 1. This is the last chapter of the Bible. It should be easy to find. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that is our blessed hope. Let me pray. Father, we ask... We ask that we would be a people who look to your son, the light of the world. If there's any here who aren't saved, who aren't looking to Jesus now, Father, we ask that you would open their blinded eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. They would look to him and be saved. That you would create in them a new creation. Father, we pray for those of us who do know your son, who are looking to him, who know that he's the light of the world, who've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, we ask that you would cause us to be a people who are thankful for our salvation in Christ. We ask that you would cause us to be a people who walk as children of the day or children of the light, who don't participate in unfruitful works of darkness. Cause us to be a people, Father, who are ever ready with the lamps burning, waiting for your Son to return. A people who proclaim the excellencies of your Son, Jesus, who brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. A people who never tamper with God's word, but proclaim Jesus. And a people who look forward always to the consummation of the kingdom, the day when there will be no more darkness, no more sin, no more suffering, and no more death, when the Lamb is our lamp, our light forever, and we reign with him. Ask that you would bring that day soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus, come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.